Good morning, everyone. It is a joy to be with all of you. Um, I'm not sure uh, if you know me. If you don't, my name is Adam. I'm a pastor here at Highland. I'm usually up at our Merrill campus, and it's a joy to be with you here today. This water bottle today reminded me of the first time I ever preached at Highland a few years back. And uh, I didn't have time to get a water bottle. And I remember thinking to myself, you know what? You're a tough guy. You don't need a water bottle like all those weak guys. And I almost lost it because I had a frog in my throat in the middle of that sermon. There were tears coming down my cheek. And thankfully, it was during an emotional time of this message. So, (laughs) but anyway... Today we're going to be in Deuteronomy chapter 6. If you have a Bible with you today, it'll be helpful to be there. We're going to be in chapter 6, verses 4 through 9. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. Let me pray just to open our time in God's Word. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, you are big and you love us, and that makes us glad. And now let the words that I say and the thoughts that we all think be pleasing in your sight for Jesus' sake. Amen. There are not many laws today where violation brings the uh, the death penalty for violating, but one such law where violation may lead a person down the path of death is regarding treason. The law opens like this. It says, whoever owing allegiance to the United States levies war against them or adheres to their enemies, giving them aid and comfort within the United States or elsewhere, is guilty of treason and shall suffer death or be imprisoned. And it makes me think of Julius and Ethel Rosenberg, American citizens who were accused of and convicted of spying for and helping the Soviet Union. They're most famous for giving them secrets of advanced military technology, including designs for nuclear weapons. And they were sentenced to the max. In 1953, they became the first American civilians to be executed for treason during peacetime. And a question that pops into my mind is, why is the weight of penalty so heavy for a crime like this? For even catching a foreign spy or a foreign operative doesn't carry the same weight as treason does. And I think the reason is captured in those first few words, whoever owing allegiance to the United States. If you catch a foreign spy, at least they're doing what they're supposed to do, right? An enemy can even be respected when they're putting their life on the line for the country to whom they owe allegiance. But to double-cross your country, to double-cross your people, to put your fellow citizens in danger is not honorable, it's duplicitous. When you rightly owe your allegiance to something or someone, the expectation is not double-dealing, but single-minded devotion. Not duplicitousness, but a unity of motive. Not to double-cross someone, but a oneness of affection. And friends, this is what God expects of all humanity. God expects our single-minded, unified, and sole allegiance. We are not to give our allegiance to any other. We are not to divide our allegiance between God and any other. Today's text, it was a call to Israel. It's a call to all people. That people owe their allegiance to God and to God alone. The big question today is this. Do you know the one to whom you owe allegiance? And will you give it to him? Do you know the one to whom you owe allegiance? And will you give it to him? 
Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. These are God's words. And since we haven't been in the book of Deuteronomy for a while, let's set the scene. This is the last book of Moses. It's the conclusion to the origin story of everything. The heavens and the earth and all that are in them. And that includes Israel. This is Moses' final hurrah, his concluding speech, the last words that he will give to Israel before she enters the land of promise. And remember, all that Israel's been through in the last 40 years, God rescued them out of Egypt. He trumped Egypt's gods and he brought his people out with the spoils of the superpower who once enslaved them. Through the Red Sea to Mount Sinai, he gives them his law, most famously the Ten Commandments. And you recall that terrible thing that was happening right at the bottom of the mountain where God was giving them the law. Israel had already forgotten her God and bowed the knee to another. And the big question quickly becomes, who is Israel's God? And will they give him their allegiance? Though they had seen God's mighty hand... They quickly bowed the knee to another. And so as Moses leads that rebellious generation through the wandering years, he watches them all pass away. Standing before him now is a new generation. They stand before the land of promise. Moses knows about the blessings that accompany obedience. He knows about the curses that come by rebellion. And so Moses prepares Israel for the next chapter in her story because he's not going with them. And you can put yourself in his shoes, can't you? You can put yourself in his place and feel his concern. And so he gathers the people together. He recites the commandments and he explains their importance. He reminds Israel, this is your God. And at the epicenter of it all, in just 16 Hebrew words, Moses gives him the most important words he's ever uttered. In all the 40 years that he's led them, these are the most important words he's ever penned. He utters in two sentences the command by which Israel will either live by through obedience or die by if neglected. It is their pledge of allegiance, the greatest of commandments. It's a mantra that to this day is repeated by observant Jews every morning and every night. The great question surfaces again, who is Israel's God and will they give him their allegiance? And Moses pleads with them, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. The first Hebrew word is Shema. The kids in VBS at Weston and Marathon have already learned about this word. It's what this passage has been called about for millennia. It becomes the most important words in the Jewish religion, and rightfully so. 
because it summarizes the law. It explains what covenant faithfulness should look like. Even Jesus cited these verses when he was asked, what is the most important commandment? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. At the heart of the Ten Commandments, at the core of all the hundreds of laws and regulations, sits this one command, the greatest commandment of them all. If this was a Tolkien book or Lord of the Rings, this would be the one command to rule them all. And so we need to work really hard to make sure we understand this important law. It begins again with that Hebrew word Shema, and we usually translate it as hear or listen. But it means so much more than opening one's ears or paying attention. It means to hear and heed. It means to listen and obey. If we, if we think of this word, it is not enough just to simply comprehend. One must obey because to hear the word of your God and not to obey is to not love or hear him at all. It means hear and heed, listen and obey. And what we're told to hear and heed, what we're told to obey might seem a little confusing. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. How do you obey that one? I think the best way to illustrate how strange this little sentence is is to hear someone else's name in its place. Hear, O Highland, your speaker Adam, your speaker, Adam, is one. What does that mean? And how does one obey that? Well, it turns out that the key to understanding this little verse is the word one. And by itself, it's a simple little word, but in this context, it is pregnant with meaning. There are at least two important dimensions that we should observe. First, Yahweh... The covenant-making God is one in the way that he reveals himself, how he operates, who he is. He is self-consistent. He is unchanging. Who he was at creation is who he is today. Who he was when he brought Israel out of the land of Egypt is who he is now that he brings them into the land. Every time that God has revealed himself in history, he is one, one objective for creation, a single purpose in history. Who he is now and how he operates is the same today, tomorrow, and forever because God is one, the same God, forever, always himself. And friends, that is really good news because if God has revealed himself good and mighty and beautiful in creation and he has revealed his love and election to Abraham and if he's revealed his mighty arm when he rescued his people out of Egypt and if he revealed his compassion and his mercy and his patience with Israel then we can depend on him today and tomorrow and forever because God is one he is always consistent with his own self. The first meaning of this word one, it answers the question, who is this God with? He is one. The same one who he's always been, will always be, and we can trust him to do what he's always done, to rescue his people as he's always saved his people. 
The Apostle Paul picks up on this meaning of God's oneness, and he quotes this verse to show how the one God has saved both Jews and Gentiles in the same way. Because he's one. He's self-consistent. Romans 3, 28 through 30 read like this. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised by faith. Historically, a God who is inconsistent is polytheistic. And if God treats different people in different ways and saves them in different methods, there's really two gods, a God of the Jews and a God of the Gentiles. But Moses and Paul are saying that God is one. He's the same one he's always been from generation to generation. And this means God is not fickle, that he's not impulsive, he's not unpredictable. God is one and he can be loved enthusiastically because he is consistently his lovable self. God is one, the same one, the same one he's always been. But the second way that this little word unlocks the meaning of this command is by declaring that God is one, as in Yahweh, the covenant-making God, is God alone. In a world that was dominated by polytheism, Israel was called to love God exclusively. God is one, as in the only one, the one and only they're about to enter the land of Canaan, which worshipped many different gods. And so if the first way that one is understood answered the question, who is this God? The second way we should understand one answers the question, who is Israel's God? And when said in faith, Israel was declaring their undivided, unreserved, and unqualified devotion to Yahweh and Yahweh alone. That he is one of a kind, that he is God alone. It was a cry of allegiance, and it defined who God's people were when these words were accompanied with obedience in faith. The prophet Zechariah picks up on this meaning of God's oneness, as in the exclusive allegiance that is due the Lord our God, as he echoes this verse in Zechariah 14, 9. He wrote this, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one, and his name one. Israel was called to claim only Yahweh as their God. And Zechariah, he looks forward to a day when the boundaries of those who claim only Yahweh as Lord would be expanded to the ends of the earth. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Who is God? God is one. He's the same one he's always been and will always be. One who we can enthusiastically love because he is consistently his glorious self. Who is Israel's God? He is the one and only. He is God alone, one of a kind. And so if the Lord is one, the proper response, heck, the, the logical response would be to love him as one. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Because out of the oneness of this God should flow a oneness of love. To love the one God with one's whole self. And in verse 5, Moses explains that love 
is what obedience looks like to this God. Love is what obedience looks like to this God. And he qualifies it with three Hebrew words, one's heart, one's soul, and one's might. Now, Pastor Dave gave me permission to get a little little nerdy with all of you because he said you are a sophisticated bunch. And so we're going to dive into some Hebrew words, and it's not so we can look smart in front of our friends, but they will illustrate just how all-inclusive and single-focused our love of God ought to be. Because the command says to love God with all our heart. And that's a good translation. However... The ancient Hebrews thought of the heart very differently than you and I do today. If I tell you that I love you with all my heart, it means something like, I feel very strongly about you. That when I think of you, spend time with you, or speak of you, I am filled up with positive emotions. I feel joy in you. I delight in you. I desire you. You make me happy. But in ancient Hebrew thought, and in many places throughout the Bible, the heart is not only where you feel or have emotions or experience desire, it's where you reason, it's where you think, it's where wisdom resides, it's where you weigh matters and where you make choices. There was no concept of the mind then, thus the heart was where you think and where you feel, where you understand and where you make choices. So when it says, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, don't think of emotions alone. Think of the whole inner self. Here's how I would say it. The heart sits in the driver's seat of the whole person. The heart sits in the driver's seat of the whole person. It's the inner self. And so if we're called to love God with all our heart, the next thing we're called to love God with is our whole soul And this, too, needs a little bit of explaining because it might be a little different than we first think. Because it wasn't until much later in Greek thought and philosophy that the human was divided between a physical body and a spiritual soul. But in ancient Hebrew thought, the word literally means throat. It means neck. It means breath. It is a symbol of life. And so in Hebrew thought, you don't have a soul, you are a soul. It's why this word is often translated as me or I. Or in the Psalms, we hear, praise the Lord, oh my soul. It means all that I am, praise the Lord. To love the Lord your God with all your soul is to love him with your whole living, breathing self. So if loving God with all your heart means the inner self, The place where you have desires, where you think, where you reason, where you make choices, the driver's seat. And if loving God with all your soul means your whole living, breathing, physical self, how do you love God with all your might? What does loving God with all your might look like? And it gets even a little nerdier here, and I apologize, but this is an awesome word because in the Hebrew, this word doesn't mean might at all. Only here in the Bible and in one other place that cites this verse is this word ever translated as might. In hundreds of other times that this word occurs, you'll see words like very or greatly or exceedingly. I had a professor who once said that this is not a word you translate on its own. Rather, he suggested the following interpretation might be better. To love the Lord your God with all of your... Because... 
This isn't a thing at all that you love God with. This is everything. It is the most inclusive and expansive word in the command. Your, your muchness. And this is why when it was translated into Aramaic years later, it was heart, soul, and wealth. When it was translated into Greek, it was heart, soul, and strength. When Jesus cited this verse, when he was asked for the most important command, he uses two words in its place. He said this, the most important is here, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. This is the greatest of commandments, and it calls not only our heart, not only our soul, but our, or everything, our everything else. Here, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Since God is one, he shall be loved as one. Double-minded love won't do. Devotion that is divided will not suffice. If you give of your money without an inward desire to honor God, that's not oneness of love. If you obey the commandments and go through the motions, but your heart isn't captured by this God, that is not a oneness of love. Israel, as well as you and me, we are called to a single-focused, single-minded, exclusive love of God. A love that commands our heart, the driver's seat where we think and feel and have decisions. A love that commands our soul, our whole living, breathing, physical self. And a love that captures our, well, you know the word, our everything else. Our abilities, our wealth, our influence, our, insert something in the blank here. Since God is one, the same one, the only one, he shall be loved as one. All that we are, unreserved, undivided, and unqualified. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Those are the most important words that Israel received before entering the land, and they're important for us today as well. All the law is summarized here. All the commands are interpreted here. All the law holds together here in this, the greatest of commandments. But if this is such a great commandment, and the Ten Commandments were written on stone tablets, the most enduring substance of the day, where does this greater commandment belong? Where should this law be inscribed? And verse 6 says, And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. The only proper place for this law to live is on the human heart. You can't love God outwardly. If the heart doesn't match, that is not obedience. And this reveals the great big problem that Israel had. Israel didn't have the right equipment. They didn't have the right kind of heart that could receive this law. The law is perfect. The problem was the heart. Israel had a heart of stone and it was just too hard to be permanently inscribed upon. What Israel needed was a heart of flesh, one that was living, one that was sensitive to God. There was no external force or obstacle that could have stood in Israel's way from loving God with heart, soul, and might. Nothing external could truly stop them. The obstacle was within. 
And it's why for the rest of the Old Testament, it looks forward to a day when God would replace the heart of stone with a heart of flesh. The Old Testament looks forward to that day when the law could truly be written upon the human heart. Even by the end of this book, the book of Deuteronomy, Moses tells Israel about that day because he knows that Israel will eventually reap the curses of persistent disobedience. He knows that one day they will be exiled from the land, and so he looks beyond those days to a day when God will once again intervene on behalf of his people. And in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, he says about that day, and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, so that you may live. One day, God would intervene again on behalf of his people because God is one. And on that day, there will be an even greater exodus when all of God's people are rescued out of the bondage of sin and death, when they will be filled with the Holy Spirit, when they will be given a new heart. When this law can truly be upon the heart. And I hope you can see where I'm going with this. I hope you see where scripture is going with this. Jesus. It is all about Jesus. Jesus said he came to fulfill the law. Jesus said that all the law and the prophets were about him. This great law does three important things. It discloses God's holy character. It directs right response. And it demonstrates we can't do it. It discloses God's holy character, directs right response, and demonstrates we can't do it. This great commandment, the Shema, like all the law, discloses God's holy character. He is one, one and only, God alone. It directs right response. We should love the Lord our God with our heart, our soul, and our might. And it demonstrates we can't do it. That we don't have the right equipment. We need help. We need a savior. We need a new heart. We need a righteousness that comes from outside of ourselves, from someone else. The great commandment pointed forward to Jesus who kept it perfectly for us. This great commandment points to Jesus who fulfills its purpose. The goal of this great commandment, the fulfillment of it is Jesus. He's what it's all about because it's now in Jesus where the holy nature of God is disclosed that he is one, he is one and only, he is God alone. It is now in Jesus where we find direction to respond rightly. He showed us what loving God with heart, soul, and might looks like. And he alone proved, he showed, he demonstrated that he could do it and that he did do it and that he did it for us. And now we can too. We are not freed to disregard this great commandment, but now in Jesus we are truly free to observe it, to have it written upon our hearts. And friends, this feels like it would be a good place to end a sermon. I mean, it all wrapped up in Jesus. This is all about Jesus. But Moses gives us three very important applications that we need to do with these words that we have been learning. We have seen that God is one and that our proper response ought to be to love him with our heart, our soul, and our might, and that it should be in our heart, that it's all about Jesus. But Moses gives us specific instructions on what else we should do with these great words in verses 7 through 9. 
He writes, you shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Three applications. The first is for parents grandparents, spiritual parents, guardians, you have one of the highest callings, one of the greatest responsibilities, one of the most influential roles in creation, and that is to raise up and instruct children in the way of the Lord. And friends, it's a weighty matter because God has entrusted into your care some of his most valuable possessions and he has expectations to teach these words diligently to your children. The word in the original language means to replicate, to duplicate. We might say it means to indoctrinate. And now our society is going to tell parents that it's wrong to push anything on children, that you need to let them express themselves, let them choose the path that they will take. But Moses tells us there's really only two paths. He says, see, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. Instructing children regularly and often is one of the best ways to nudge children towards the way of life. And to demonstrate just how important this is, I need a little bit of audience participation. Would you raise your hand if you came to know Jesus as Savior before the age of 14? Would you raise your hand? Just look around. You can put your hands down. Thank you. Most Christians are saved between 4 and 14. It's called the 414 window because it seems to be the most fruitful time for instruction and evangelism. Parents, grandparents, foster parents, guardians, spiritual parents, you have a high calling, an important task. And although your opportunity to teach your kids about God doesn't end at 14, your influence will certainly lessen over time. Because as children grow up and they start thinking for themselves, making their own decisions and becoming independent, our influence wanes. And it's why it's so important to take every opportunity to instruct children. And parents, I know you're tired. I know you're weary. I truly believe that parents are the busiest category of people in our society, especially new parents. And maybe you feel like you're barely hanging on and the last thing you could do right now is instruct your children in theological matters. But God's word is practical. He doesn't say take eight hours a day, two weeks or five days a week and two semesters a year to instruct your children. He says talk about it when you sit in your house and when you walk on the way. Maybe it's pausing that movie 10 minutes every night or taking the 10-minute car ride every single morning to memorize a Bible verse. Moses says, teach them when you lie down and when you rise. Perhaps it's that old-fashioned every single night kneeling by the bed with your kid and praying with them or putting your vocals on display, waking them up every morning with the course of your favorite worship song. All you have to be is one step ahead of someone in understanding or in their faith to have something to give, something to teach. And Moses says here that repetition is the key to understanding. 
I'm excited this fall we're going to be trying something new at all four of our campuses. We're going to help try to help families and give them a resource to help do exactly this, to do family discipleship. Every kid at our church is going to get a new city catechism. And if that word is strange or new to you, it just means oral instruction. And isn't that exactly what this verse calls us to do? Each week, the book will give a simple question with a simple answer that you can work on together that week. 52 questions, 52 answers, and we're going to do it in one year together. So keep an eye out for this book. Your kids will get a free copy. There'll be additional resources for parents and teens as well. But you shall teach these words diligently to your children. Second, Moses says that you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and hang them before your eyes. If there's a better place to not forget God's words, not to miss God's command than on the hand or before the eyes, you let me know. These are to be bound to our hands, the symbol of our actions. They're to hang before our eyes. They're to inform the way we see the world. And perhaps for you, obedience here looks like having your Bible on the nightstand so you don't forget to read it every morning and night. Maybe you use your smartphone with a reminder app to remind yourself to be in God's Word, to think of Jesus, to meditate on God's holiness every single day. When I was a manager at a retail store, I would sometimes need to insist that an employee would incorporate a new method or procedure into their work day every single day. And I would explain the procedure. I would give them one way to which they could remember to do it. And then I'd step back and say, you know what's expected. I've shown you how I would remember to do this. How you remember to do it, that's up to you. The important thing is that you do it. Your job depends on it. And friends, what is at stake here today is much more important because Moses says our lives depend on it. And so how do you and I, what do we need to do to make sure God's word is bound to our hands, to our actions, that they hang before our sight, that they're the lenses by which we interpret the world? We shall bind them to our hands. They shall hang before our eyes. And lastly, Moses tells us to write these words on your doorposts and on your gate. Now, at first, this might feel a little bit like the last one, right? So every time you leave your home or enter your home, you see God's command. Or every time you leave the city gates or come in the city gates, you're reminded of God's command. But what Moses has in mind here is identification. God's commandments should so influence life that you'd be able to identify a home or a city by them. People should have been able to observe families in Israel, observe their civil life, and know to whom they belong. Now, this was meant to be figurative because literally putting these on your doorframe and not observing them, not having real life shaped by them, would speak in a negative way much louder than that sign on the door. Interestingly, many Jews to this day will put this verse in what's called a mezuzot on the door frame, and some believe that this is being obedient to the law. But what this passage truly expects is that God's commandments would shape real life from the home and into the city. And notice that move from home to city, from family to civil. There's an outward movement from where one has more control to where one has less control. 
For example, parents, you have much more control over your household than you do your neighborhood. Employers, you have much more control over your business than you do the marketplace. And friends, we all have more control over our personal holiness than we do over the holiness of others. The call here is to bring God's commandments, his word, his wisdom to bear upon the areas and spheres of influence that we have that we're most responsible for. Because a person can be consumed with issues at a national level and never lift a finger to help that person right down the street. A person can try to change the world on social media, but they never utter an encouraging word to the people they rub shoulders with. A person can try to climb the social ladder so that one day they can make a big difference, but they forget to influence the family and friends that are all around them. Dear friends, we should honestly desire for our homes and our cities to reflect the wisdom and goodness of God's commandments. And we have an opportunity to bring this wisdom to bear in the spheres of influence that we have. And friends, we should. We should bring this to bear on all areas of life because we owe God our unreserved, undivided, and unqualified allegiance. Because God is one. He's the only one. He's the one and only. He's the one he's always been. And he deserves our love. The wholeness of our love. A single-minded, single-focused love. And we're not truly obedient to a law like this unless he owns our heart, our soul, and all that we are. And then once... Our affections are all for God. Once he's captured all that we are, we need to let these words saturate every aspect of our life and the lives of those connected to us. Highland, may we be a church that knows the one God and give him our allegiance. May we be a church that when we're asked, who is your God? that we would boldly and unhesitantly proclaim with our words and our actions, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come before you today as your humble children. And we are grateful that you have disclosed yourself to us in your word, your written word, and in your word, your son, your one and only. Father, we thank you so much that you would instruct us, that you would reveal how we should relate to you. And I pray, Father, by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would work in each one of us, that we would not only hear, but that we would heed that you would capture our hearts, our soul, and our might, all that we are, Father, that we would love you with our whole self, that we would walk the path of life. Father, help us to see how this all points to Jesus. Help us to see how Jesus is what this is all about and that we might love you more and more in and through him each day. Father, may we be a people that give you our entire allegiance. Help us, we pray, by the Holy Spirit. And may our last worship song this morning display our heart, our affections, our allegiance to you, our one God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.